read these first two verses and see what God has for us this morning about answering the call. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So every time I start a new book, I know the question that some of you may have would be why. Um, Well, that was a question that I was asking God not too terribly long ago. Why address this? Now, I preached on this about 11 years ago, and of course, I'm under no illusions that everybody remembers all of that. A lot of you have come here, but even then, not many of us have that kind of a memory. But when you think about, when I've been thinking about all the things that have changed over the last um, 11 years in our country, and really just things that may have changed in a lot of you, um, I think it's good for us to get back and to really address it. And a lot of, and honestly, I I have all of my kids now are heading back to school, but they're but none of them are in high school anymore. They're well, they're heading back to college. One's going to be heading into the military, and when you start thinking about your kids being in college and just some of the things that you know, especially when it's talking about a biblical worldview that's being taught, um, it's really not being taught. You wish it was. You wish there was a little more engagement from some of our our college not only students, but the organizations, the administration, you wish it was a little more open, but you really find out that it's not, and it's really kind of a sad deal. A professor that uh, teaches at my alma mater, Palm Beach Atlantic, has got a guy named Paul Coppin. He wrote a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? And it's not that he believes that. It's not that Paul Coppin believes it, but he's an apologist. And that doesn't mean that he's walking around apologizing for the Christian faith. No, he's actually going around and defending the Christian faith. And when he begins to talk about the Christian faith to those that are in our culture, because the culture has gone so far away from the things that God has outlined in his word, then to say anything against it is not simply just a disagreement, but you're, you're deemed immoral. That, that the Bible now is not considered something simply to be ignored or disbelieved, but now because of what the Bible is saying, the Bible is now considered evil in our culture. And so Re- Rebecca McLaughlin, in her, it's a really good book called Confronting Christianity, which means that there's people confronting Christianity and she's giving you ways to be able to help. This is what she wrote early on in the book. In 2016, the largest survey of incoming freshmen to U.S. universities found that 30.9% claimed no religious affiliation. 30.9%. That's a dramatic 10% rise since 2006. This group broke down into freshmen um, who selected none, 16%, and those who identified as agnostic, 8.5%, and those who claimed atheism, 6.4%. While the growth of the non-religious population has been rapid, this is no license to cede the university to secularism. 69% of U.S. college students, 69% of U.S. college students still identify as religious and 60.2% identify as Christian. To be sure, checking the box on a survey is not proof of active faith, but when more students identify as Baptist than atheist, we need to be careful about exaggerated claims of secularization. So there is hope to be found. There is traction that is still happening even in our universities. That's not really what Jude's talking about here. 
What Jude's talking about here is something that's even more dangerous, and that is when false teachers begin to infiltrate the church. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, which are really the key, the keystone of the whole, of the whole book, the whole letter, if you will. It's almost too small to be a book, but the letter, if you will. It's in verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Which we'll, we'll talk about more next week, but it's, it, it's, it's important that Jude was starting out with something. He was trying to encourage them about their common salvation. So it was just going to be basically a regular old letter, regular old sermon. Everybody's going to walk away kind of feeling uplifted and happy, and that's great, but that's not what we're all called to do. That's not what we're always called to do either. Contend for the faith, which means that there are those who may not want to be a part of the faith, but are trying to undermine the faith. We got to contend. Because look what it says in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we need to talk about Jude this morning. And that's why we need to talk about Jude for all of September. Because there are some who are claiming to be Christians that are undermining the Lordship of Christ. He's really not over all. He's over some. I got control of the rest of it. Thank you. No. Well, the authority of Scripture. Well, I, there's parts of Scripture, I believe, but I don't believe all of it. Well, what... Get, what guide are you using and what, what, what filter are you using to determine which you like and which you don't like? Because usually it's the, it's the parts that make us feel better and we don't like the parts that make us feel bad about ourselves. The existence of miracles or the resurrection of Christ or the fact that broken sinners need a Savior. No, we're okay. That book that came out in the 70s, right? I'm okay, you're okay. Well, the sequel to that would be a beauty, wouldn't it? We all, we're all terrible. We're all in bad shape. So it's one of those things we've got to be careful at. So when Jude was writing this, Jude was writing this in the 40s. By the way, not the 1940s, like the, the 40s, 40s. He was writing anywhere from the 40s to the 60s. We don't know what brought this on. We don't know really when he wrote it, but we do know that it was significant enough for Peter to quote a good chunk of this in his second letter that is preserved here in Scripture. False teachers that come in and even false ideas that may be coming into our minds that start getting some traction, Jude is not having it. And when it comes to the Spirit of God moving and working in the church, we must not have it either. We need to know. When he's talking about contending for the faith, he's not talking about faith, oh, I'm just going to drum up enough faith and believe and oh, here we go. It's the faith. The content of God's word, the content of all revelation, we have to contend for that. Because when God speaks, we must listen. I want to remind you of that old bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That second little thing in there, it doesn't matter. Because whether you believe it or not, God said it. That settles it. And therefore, we must move forward recognizing his lordship, recognizing his authority, recognizing that he's alive. And he is sitting on the throne now, and one day he's going to return. One day we're going to have to give an account. And over and over we see, even when it, uh, books that were written from the 40s, 4-0, not 19, right? 40s to the 60s or whenever, we're seeing an urgency then. 2,000 years later, why are we less urgent 
2,000 years later than those they were more urgent then. It doesn't make sense. But we've got to be very, very careful. So we're going to start with this opening. And I hope all of you have your Bibles. I know some of you are looking at me, and that's great. I hope you have your Bibles open, because I want to make sure that you're, you're, you're catching what I'm saying. Um, I know most of you may, may have it memorized, but I, I guarantee a lot of you don't, especially Jude. You have Jude memorized? Good for you. you know, but, but, but let's open his word, because if we believe in the authority of Scripture, let's open it. Let's see what it has to say. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. So let's take a look here. Three ways that we see that we see that we are in Christ. So look here. You see in the middle of that opening, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There have been volumes that have been written on each of those descriptors. Called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. Well, well, Who's given Jude the authority to write anything about any of this? Well, who is Jude? Well, Jude was one of the apostles. In order to, be, to qualify as an apostle, you had to be with Jesus for three and a half years, witness all of his miracles, hear all of his teachings, and see him rose, risen from the dead. And Jude had that. And it says that he is a servant. Now, our history doesn't really do servanthood and slavery. That's not, that's a, that was a very problematic, to say the least, history in our culture. And when we're seeing this, we're saying, well, you're talking about slavery here. Well, that, the word servant here is actually a bond servant, which means that someone has no more rights. They have sacrificed all of their rights for the sake of their master. Now, the slavery that we see happening all over the world now and the slavery that took place in a, in a large chunk of our history early on, it wasn't willful. It was not voluntary, very involuntary. It's about as involuntary as you could possibly get. Here, when Judah's saying, I am a servant, it's because I've seen all that Jesus is. And Jesus has so transformed and changed my heart and mind, I don't want to serve anybody else. I'm all in. That's what it means to be a servant. That's what it means to be a bond servant, some of your versions may say. Brother of James, he was the one that was over all of the, the church in Jerusalem. And so there was a connection. The sons of Zebedee were the ones who connected with Jesus while they were fishing. And they began to follow him. And they began to follow him immediately. And he, so he's writing this. And he is, instead of getting right into, okay, we've got to contend. We've got to get after it, everybody. We've got to go. Let's roll. Let's go. He is reminding us of who we are as Christians. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to just tell you, this is what is in store for you. This is what he does for you. He doesn't leave you by yourself. You may think, well, that's freedom. No, freedom, freedom is knowing where you're going. Freedom is is staying within good boundaries. And this is what God has for us. So when we're looking at this, let's, let's look at these one by one, piece by piece, called. What does it mean to be called? Well, whenever we use this word in church world, called usually means that you're called to go do something, right? I have surrendered a call to be a pastor. I have surrendered to the ministry. I have surrendered to the mission field. When I came here, most pastors, when they're a pastoral candidate, they come in view of a call. And so we use the word call almost, as, almost too narrowly. 
we, we use it, and we only use it for the fact that this is where God is calling someone into a particular service. That does not seem to be how Jude is using this. Jude seems to be using this in a much wider scale. Well, that's because that's how the Bible many, many times, most of the time, uses this word. So a couple of verses, one in John 6, and this is where, in John 6, so Jesus and the Pharisees are having a a figurative cage match. They're just right in there. They're locked in, going after each other. This is how it should be. We're following Moses. Well, if you were following Moses and you were doing this, and they're going back and forth. And in the midst of this, really what Jesus is shaking out for is what is true belief? It's not just mental. It is, it, is a, it is a desire. It is a will. It is all, being all in, all that we are. And in John six forty four, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you thought it was your idea at first. And it wasn't. Now, Jesus, knowing how we are, because sometimes we need to have things repeated, have to, you know, especially when we're little kids. You know, how many times do you say the same thing over and over and over again? Just once? No? Okay, you, you, some, your parents only had to tell it to you once. Well, I'm different because mom had to tell me lots of times. And sometimes she would use my first name. And then sometimes she would middle name me, Matthew Robert. Don't what? And then sometimes she would just say Robert. And that was so out there that I'm like, whoa, this is really significant. What's going Whoa, what did I do? I didn't mean to. So no one can come to me unless the Father who, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it again in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So it, it is the Lord that initiates the call. He's the one that initiates the call for salvation. All of it, all of salvation, all of you that have trusted in Jesus Christ and are all in, you didn't start that. God did. God was working in you. And and in verse 63, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is saying, it is the Spirit who gives life the the flesh. I'm going to say that again. Take two. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The word that we get from church came from a Greek word, ecclesia, which you hear the word ecclesiastical or even ecclesiastes, it means assembly, but it means called out ones. You've been called out from the world. You've been called out from darkness and to, and to, and to follow his marvelous light. That's what 1 Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called who? Just a preacher? Just the, the, the missionary? Just fill in the blank of anybody that's up front in leadership? No. He called you, y'all. Those of you from the South, y'all is a great word. That is a collective. Y'all. He called y'all out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, Peter, you're a little off. Well, let's, let's get back to Paul. 
Okay, well, what's Paul say? Well, in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's a calling, a choosing. He brought us to himself. He did it in the Old Testament where he chose a people. He does it in the New Testament where he's choosing a people. And so that's where we get into Romans 8.28, which we love Romans 8.28, but we, we got to realize Romans 8.28 is right in the middle of 26 to 30. That's math, but it's also literature. It's right in the middle there. But starting in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you hear that? called. Christians are called. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you're a Christian, God has called you to himself. But there's more that Jude is talking about. He also talks about that you are beloved in God the Father. That word beloved is the word that we get, um, if, if you know that word agape, that came up a lot in John 21 in your Sunday school classes, I'm sure. But agape, that's the same, but this is the same word that's describing not, the, not just the love that we are to show to other people, but it's also the word that is describing the love that God has showed toward us. It is a selfless, sacrificial love. Now, when you're married, you make those vows to do that. You don't always get it right. There are going to be times in your marriage when you're just going to be thinking about you. It's like, again, Terrell Owens, I, want, I love me some me, right? You're going to be thinking along that line all uh, at, at times and sometimes prayerfully that you'll repent of that and you realize that your marriage is about sacrifice. It's about being selfless. It's not being about selfish. They're not the ones to sacrifice only. You are the ones that are sacrificed for each other. That's what marriage is, is all about. And this is what he's done for us. When you see the cross, you are seeing the agape love of God. A selfless, sacrificial love that he has given on our account in order to bring us to himself. It's part of the call. And we have to realize that. And there's lots of verses here. I could tell you what I think about the matter, but there's a lot of things that are, that are being said. And like in 1 John 4, 8, where it talks about God is love, right? It doesn't mean that he, that does not mean that he loves everything that you do. And whatever you decide to do, precious little one, it's okay, it's fine. No, no parent worth their salt would be that way because God loves those whom he disciplines and he disciplines those whom he loves. And so he disciplines us when we get outside of those bounds and, and he, to, in order to bring us back in. And so those of us that may be in unrepentant sin, we know this is not God's way of whatever it is that's part of your life. And you're, you're going after it and you're saying, well, God loves me anyway. Well, he does, but he loves you enough not to leave you that way selfless, sacrificial love. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, in love, he predestined us for an adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He loves you like a child. He loves you like a son, like a daughter. And you're going to get the full inheritance of the riches of Christ when that time comes. We see God so loved the world that he gave. 
Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You may know this hymn, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. The last stanza of that, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. So we're called, we're beloved, but we're also kept, preserved, guarded. He keeps his children. You saw that in, in a previous passage we read, I am his and he is mine. He, we become his people and he becomes our God. That's what he has done. And we, he keeps us in the midst of the brokenness and the disgust and the, 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 the the culture that wants to just completely careen away from everything he is, he keeps his children until, the wait, until they wait to the final consummation of all things when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. He keeps us. John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're truly His. You're kept. No one can take you out. So that's what He has done for us. Dryness, love it. That's what He's done for us. But now what is, what's He working in us? What's this, this second part? What, what is He wanting to multiply in us? Well, he says here, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, he didn't say may mercy, peace, and love be given to you. What he's saying is that you already have it. As Christians, you already are recipients of his mercy. You you are not receiving what you deserve. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you're, we're talking about this first one, mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. When we become Christians, there is a word that is used in the scriptures, justification. That means that the penalty of our sin has been taken off of us and put onto Christ. Do you understand what has happened to you as a Christian? You deserved hell. You deserved full separation from God. And yet he took that penalty and put it upon his son for you. Are you taking that for granted? Or is that causing you to praise? I hope it does. Don't ever take the cross and the empty tomb and what was accomplished there. Don't ever take that for granted. Ever. But even after we're justified, do we still sin? Yes or no? I'll wait. Yeah. So we do sin. We still mess up. 
Sometimes we mess up. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't care what God says. Yeah, we mess up. And sometimes we mess up unknowingly. Sometimes we mess up knowingly. And we're still needing his mercy. We're still needing that. I told you before when I was in a music history class, when I was a music student, and I walked up and I thought that I got a grade lower than I deserved. And I walked up to the professor and I said, I want justice. And he's like, you don't, you don't need justice. I read your paper. You need mercy. That, and, and that's what it is. We think so much that we deserve certain things. And it's like, yeah, we deserve it. But the other, the other direction. We always need mercy. And there is a passage that I, I read to you over and over again. It's Hebrews four fourteen to 16, where it says, Since then we have a great high priest. That's Jesus, by the way. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't, don't give it up. Keep trusting in your convictions and what is said in his word. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. You mean he was tempted that way? Yes. Wait a minute. What about that way? Yeah. What about that way? In every way he has been tempted. We, we, in every way. It says it right there in the word. But yet he persevered. He, he was without sin. Think about that. Now, it's easy for us to get our act together with our words. We can clean up our language. It's easy for us to get our act together by not going certain places and not doing certain things. But you know, there's another environment that we've got to be real careful of, and that's our thought life. Jesus was getting all over the Pharisees about that because the Pharisees were outwardly, were spotless, spick and span spotless. But inside, there was all sorts of crud going on, and Jesus exposed that. No, you're sinners in your thought life too. And so he's saying, look, Jesus was without sin that way too. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. You need mercy now, dear Christian, not just when you first came to Christ. Well, I'm going I'm to trust in Jesus, and I'm going to work really hard to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. No, you need mercy all the time, all the time, every day, every hour, every minute. You need mercy all the time because that's how often that we are, we, we drift away, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, as the old hymn says. Well, what about peace? What about peace? When we came to Christ, called, beloved, and kept, he gave us peace, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That doesn't mean that he's going to take away all wars. What that means is he's going to take away the hostility between you as a sinner and God who is holy. There was hostility before you came to Christ. If, if you're not a Christian, there's hostility now. And God may be moving and working in you and you're wondering what in the world's going on? Why is this happening? Why do I feel, I don't want to go there. I've seen those people. I don't want to be like that. They have no fun. What are we doing? No, no, no. What happened is, is that they have found the, the peace that happened when the hostility went away provided a peace, a calm, a rest we don't have to worry about what other people think of us anymore. You don't even have to worry about what you think of you anymore. Because I know sometimes you wake up and you look in the mirror in the morning, this is going to be a great day, and then you look in the mirror at night, boy, this is a terrible day. I can't get anything right. 
Maybe so. Maybe so. We've all been there. But there's a Savior that died on the cross for you that brought you peace. What does He think of you? Well, He called you. I didn't deserve it. Right. Well, um, and, and He loves me. Well, I don't deserve that. Well done. You get it. You're starting to get grace. He kept me. Even when I'm all over the place, he kept, that's right, because it's not about how hard you hold on to him, it's about how hard he holds on to you. And hopefully, and I pray that if you're a follower of Jesus, you know he's holding on to you. Peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we've been reconciled to God. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation to tell others how to be reconciled to God. But our sin was put upon his son. And his righteousness was put to our account. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm just trusting that what he is saying is so. And I'm thankful that it is. Because God, among other things, is a promise-keeping God. What about love? Well, this love that he's talking about here, that we are beloved, that he keeps on giving it. Not based upon what we deserve, but he gives it because we're his child. You don't love your child because of what they deserve. At least I hope not. Well, we'd all be in trouble if our parents treated us like that. You love your child because they're your child. And, and, and there is this multiplication that's there. For while we were still weak, Romans 5, 6 to 8, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Not because we deserved it, not because we got our act together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Died for me, died for the y'all. He did it. How do we move forward with this? We could spend so much time being and acting like Christians that we forget what it means to be a Christian, what our standing is. If you are a follower of Jesus, he called you by his grace for your good. He loves you with a a sacrificial, selfless love that was demonstrated at the cross and the empty tomb. And even in the middle of that, when you may still keep sinning willfully, that's one thing. But even when you sin, there should be something in you because Christ resting in you that brings such conviction that it leads to repentance. If you're in a life of of unrepentant sin, meaning that you are are doing something that you know God is displeased with and you just hope that feeling's gonna go away, it's not gonna go away. That, that, That discrepancy between your life and what God's calling to you, it's not gonna go away. God's way, and God's way is freedom, and God's way is is peace. And that's where he's saying, This is what I want multiplied to you. My mercy. I'll still, I'm still there, 
and I'm still doling it out as you approach the throne of grace with confidence. Peace, the hostility is gone, but now also the rest that Jesus promises is, will be yours as well. Wouldn't that be nice to just be able to have some rest and knowing that he loves you? That's already yours, dear Christian, but he's promised and, and, and said, may this be multiplied upon you over and over like breakers on the seashore. Boom, boom, mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, have you set the bar so low? He's come and he said, I have called you, I love you, I'm keeping you. May this help you to be all in, all in. You may need to recommit your life to Christ because of what you've heard this morning. And you may be, even if you're, you're all in, I'm, and you may say, Lord, multiply the mercy, multiply the peace, multiply the love. What a great, you're not imposing upon him. Well, I don't want to intrude. He said he would do it. And he's got a treasure trove of all of that that is a bottomless well for you to partake of. So why not? Let's be, as followers of Jesus, let's get after it. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here, you're feeling something going on, God's calling you because he loves you and he wants to keep you. And then you see the mercy and the peace. He'll keep giving it, keep giving it, keep giving it. Let's see what he has for us. That's how we contend. We remember who we are, and we remember what he's done on our behalf. Father, help us in all that we do and say, guide us. And Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, may they not leave until they at least hear the explanation, hear from your word what is being said. And Father, I pray that if, that if there are those that are here, but boy, the mercy... The peace, the love, it feels like it's in short supply. May we come back to your word by your spirit and be reminded that you've promised to give it to us in abundance. How great the love that we have from the Father that he has lavished this upon us. Help us, Lord. And if you're moving in us and working in us and you're showing us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the life that we have is not your way, and you're showing another way from your word, I pray you would give us the strength to turn loose of, that, of those white knuckles and to open up our hands and say, Lord, I am yours. I accept your call. I receive your love. I thank you that you're going to keep me. Help me, Lord, in all that we do and say. Help us, Lord, in all that we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we commit our lives